Welcome to a special edition of Pod Help Idaho. I am your host, Shem Hanks. We at Pod Help Idaho wanted to do an episode that focused exclusively on Medicaid expansion in Idaho, how the idea of Medicaid expansion became Proposition 2, and how Prop 2 passed to establish Medicaid expansion as law. This idea of a Medicaid expansion episode ballooned into a series of interviews with those who are in the trenches of getting Medicaid expansion on the ballot, and then across the finish line. I believe that the work on the ballot initiative that allowed Prop 2 to become law is the single greatest feat in the modern history of Idaho politics. For this political miracle to happen, it took a group of 365,107 voters. By voting yes, these voters made Prop 2 more popular than the newly elected governor of Idaho, Brad Little. I am one of these 365,107 voters, and if you are listening to this podcast, odds are you're one of those voters too. How do 365,107 voters get mobilized to expand health care coverage to 62,000 Idahoans who live their lives in what's been called the Medicaid gap? How did a long-shot proposition idea become a law in Idaho? This is that story. Hopefully, you like it and feel inspired by this journey. To understand how a group called Reclaim Idaho formed and why a ballot initiative for expansion of Medicaid was needed in Idaho, we have to explore the history of Medicaid expansion itself. Let's go back to March 23, 2010. This was the day that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act passed in Congress. After painful years of debate, there was finally some healthcare reform in the United States. Let's also remember some history. It will not surprise you that three Republican members of the Idaho federal delegation voted against the ACA. However, it is easy to forget that Idaho had a Democratic congressman, Walt Minnick, who also cast a no vote to passing the ACA. The primary purpose of the ACA was to expand access to health insurance, protect patients against arbitrary action by insurance companies, and to reduce costs. The ACA itself is a whopping 906 pages. We're not going to go through everything that it covers, provides, and enforces. However, one of its provisions mandates states to expand Medicaid eligibility to everyone with incomes at or below 138% of the poverty line beginning in 2014, with the federal government picking up the majority of the costs of the expansion. Then, June 2012 happens. The U.S. Supreme Court strikes down the Medicaid expansion mandate, leaving that expansion decision to the individual states. One month later, Governor Butch Otter appoints two health care groups, one to study Medicaid expansion, one to study whether Idaho will create its own health insurance exchange. In his State of the State speech in January of 2013, Otter calls for creation of a state exchange and rejects Medicaid expansion. March 2013, the bill that creates the Your Health Idaho exchange passes. A Republican representative from Myona, Idaho, introduces a Medicaid expansion bill, but it doesn't move further than an informational hearing. The next year, in 2014, 
The Idaho House Health and Welfare Committee votes against introducing a Medicaid expansion bill. Fast forward to 2016. Senator Dan Schmidt, a Democrat from Moscow, introduces a Medicaid expansion bill that would expand Medicaid fully as the ACA originally envisioned. That February, hundreds of people came to the Capitol for the Senate Health and Welfare Committee hearing on Schmidt's bill, which does not advance after that hearing. In protest, Senator Schmidt would relinquish the health insurance benefits afforded to him and every other part-time lawmaker in the Idaho legislature. Then, D-Day. November 8, 2016. The statistically improbable happens. Donald J. Trump squeezes out an electoral college victory to win the presidency, as well as Republicans gain control of both houses of Congress. Here in Idaho, Senator Dan Schmidt loses his re-election bid as well as House Minority Leader John Rushi. Both were tagged by their opponents and Republican leaders in their communities as being pro-Obamacare Democrats, and thereby out of touch with their constituents. It is important to remember that nationally, there were multiple movements by the President and leaders in Congress to repeal the ACA. However, we all learned through that process that once people get health care coverage, they do not easily give it up. Every attempt to repeal the ACA has failed. This is where our story begins. This is when the foundation of Reclaim Idaho started to form to push Medicaid expansion in Idaho. An important term that we'll be using is the Medicaid gap. Let's clarify what the Medicaid gap is. The Medicaid coverage gap refers to the group of uninsured people who live in states like Idaho who've opted out of the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. This group of people is both ineligible for Medicaid under its previous rules, which still apply in these non-expansion states, and those in the gap don't qualify for the ACA's subsidies and credits that were designed to allow middle-class Americans the financial flexibility to purchase health insurance. The latest number puts 62,000 Idahoans in the Medicaid gap. We start our series by talking to Luke Mayville and Emily Strisich, who, along with her husband Garrett, founded Reclaim Idaho. We talk about their origin story and why they founded Reclaim Idaho in the first place. I was going through some pictures and saw a picture of Garrett, myself, and Luke all down at this wedding in Mexico. And I remember sitting at this rooftop bar talking with Luke while his mouth was agape, like keeping him up, updating him on all of these various opposition groups that had sprung up in North Idaho. And, you know, we're pushing back against some of those institutions that we hold pretty dear. And so I just remember sitting at this bar talking with him about politics in Idaho for, you know, for a couple hours. And, um, and several months after that, Luke called my husband Garrett and said, look, man, I saw you posted something about this cool levy election. And, and this opposition group that's like really energized and standpoint, like, what are we going to do to make sure this thing passes? You know, and at that point, it was very evident from the 2016 election that you couldn't just retweet your way to victory and you couldn't keep just sharing things on Facebook and assuming it was going to move the needle. You know, it was at that point that we really realized, like, if we don't get involved, who is? So we organized a weekend-long canvassing event where about 60 volunteers knocked on almost 3,000 doors in that weekend. And we won that school levy election in Sandpoint at about a two-to-one ratio, which was really nice. exciting. But I think the even more exciting thing was how many people were so energized. And you'd hear these people say things like, oh, my gosh, knocking on a stranger's door is my worst nightmare. 
but this is just too important to me to let that get in the way or our community is too important to me. So you have these people who were really, you know, that, that really wanted to get involved, that were looking for something, I think, to really rally behind a lot of people who had felt, frankly, very devastated by the 2016 election and, and you know, these growing opposition groups in Idaho that were that were energized by the 2016 election. And I think there were some folks that said, you know, enough is enough. Our politicians aren't working for us and we need to take a stand for those things that are important in our community. So that was really the origin of Reclaim Idaho with this school levy election. You know, I grew up in Sandpoint. I'd been in New York teaching and and I got a lot of experience organizing through the Catholic Church. I was a social action committee chair uh, in my parish for about four years. The 2016 election came around and uh, my wife and I, a lot of our friends were pretty upset. And we started, uh, what we started doing, I start, I kept working through the church and I found that all of a sudden the numbers of people attending our meetings was ballooning, you know, it was like twice as many people at least coming out. And, um, and, and my wife and I started thinking, you know, we have a lot of friends who keep inviting us to different protests and things. Let's try to actually create a kind of larger umbrella out and, and not just in the church. Uh, let's have some kind of citizen action group. So we actually started in our apartment. We started something called Citizen Sundays. And every Sunday we'd get together. We just invited any friends we had, any contacts we had who wanted to do something around generally around national politics to come over on Sundays. And every Sunday we'd get together and we'd, we'd make phone calls, we'd write letters or postcards. And what, after a couple Sundays, we quickly came to the conclusion that we're not doing a whole lot of good by just pressuring our legislators within this blue bubble that we live in. So we started thinking strategically, like how can we get outside of our blue bubble and actually have some impact on the larger national politics? So at that point, we started thinking like, what if we could like adopt a sister district? You know, this whole idea that people are doing around the country called sister districts, where, you know, people in a blue district would try to have some influence on a neighboring district that was red. And, you know, a couple people in our group were from Pennsylvania and they're from a red district. So we started thinking, okay, could we maybe adopt that district and start to organize some events there or go to some town halls there? I even went as far as one weekend, I went out to a town hall event on healthcare in in on Long Island, which is a conservative area, and I and I went to this raucous, you know, crowded town hall and started thinking, okay, how could we, with our group, get involved in the politics of this area somehow, so that we're not just preaching to the choir, you know. And um, and then in the midst of all that, we didn't really come up with a good strat. We hadn't come up with a good strategy yet. That was when I start talking again with. Garrett Strizich up in Sandpoint that this levy election is coming up and that in, in Sandpoint that if it fails, we we can lose $17 million to the local school district and and what could very well happen is that it, uh, several schools would close. So then I have this kind of aha moment where I'm thinking, whoa, I've been thinking so much about how I can have an impact and, you know, outside of my blue bubble that I live in. Why don't I just go home? And, uh, and and that's where and that's where I think, OK, wow, I can I've got a spring break that corresponds to the school levy. I can I can start working with Garrett 
to organize this thing and then go home during the levy vote or throw everything I know into this and get Garrett to chime in with everything he knows. And together we can organize a formidable campaign around this levy and, and we could secure $17 million for our for the budget and save schools in our home district from closing. And that's and that was a pretty inspiring cause. So so I did that, flew back and we ended up winning that election and felt like we had a pretty big impact on that victory. Uh, and that was that. So that's kind of the origin story behind the origin story. We usually just start with the story of the levy. Uh, but there was this deeper story of from my perspective, at least, of trying to think about how I can get out of the blue bubble that I was living in and eventually coming to the conclusion that maybe the most effective, meaningful way for me to do that is just to go home. Uh, so, Yeah. At what point did you start thinking, all right, so I'm at, I'm home. What I want to really do is buy this green van and start yeah. going around the state talking about Medicaid expansion, not even it being a ballot initiative at that point. Yeah, that's right. So, so well, we step back from the from the levy campaign, and that's where I had the experience that you know, and I think Garrett felt similarly, and and Emily started getting really involved, and we we all had a sense that wow, this. We, we had a pretty big impact, and in, 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 from my own perspective, I was comparing it to all the other things I'd got involved in over the years, you know, organizing through the Catholic Church, volunteering for campaigns, and to my mind, I was having a much bigger impact in Idaho than I had ever had before, and I, and I think, you know, that makes sense because these are people I grew up with. I understand. I, I felt like I had a deeper connection when I was going door to door versus when I was trying to, you know, organize people in New York or whatever. When I was going door to door in Idaho, whether people were deeply conservative or more progressive, I, I just felt an ability to connect with them a lot more, uh, and that that inspired me to think you know, about how can we keep this Idaho work going. We started, and Garrett and I started really brainstorming about how could we build some kind of 2018 statewide campaign. And we were kicking around a few big big ideas that were comparable to the levy in, in, the, in, in the urgency of them, but that were statewide. One that we kicked around was pre-K and the other was Medicaid expansion. Those were the two big ones we had in mind at the time. And we settled on Medicaid expansion, but the way we got to the idea of the green camper <laughs> was, was that uh, I started thinking, okay, we want to go, we want to somehow replicate the kind of like enthusiastic door-to-door organizing that we did in Sandpoint on a statewide scale. How are we, why would anyone listen to us? Like, why would anyone organize with us? Especially if we don't know people from all around the state. Like, why would people come out to our events and get enthusiastic about organizing with us? And that's where I thought, okay, what we need to at least be that spark that will get people to come out and listen to our strategy, we need some kind of spectacle. We need we need something that catches people's attention, that ca- that could get in the newspapers, and that 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 could fire people up. And and that's when I had the thought that you could turn find you you could turn an actual vehicle into the ma- into a mascot for a policy. <laughs> And uh, and and it was sort of an I think it was a, sort of an original idea, but it but it was a hodgepodge of some other things that I had seen. So one of them was uh, Senator Paul Wellstone in 
who's sort of a legendary progressive senator from Minnesota. He died tragically in a plane crash around 2003 or 2002. He, he was an opponent, one of the only opponents of the Iraq war in Congress at the time that he died. He would he used to drive all over Minnesota in the in an old beat up like green bus. And it was this spectacle and it was in it in it grabbed people's attention. It wasn't it it wasn't representative of a policy. It was his own, you know, it was the Wellstone bus, the Paul Wellstone bus. But that was um that was one. Another was that was a group that I deeply admired and I had worked with a little bit in my Catholic organizing uh, and that, and they were called nuns on the bus. So it was a group of, of Catholic nuns who went out, drove all around the country, especially to purple States and red States. And they, and, and they, they drove around on a bus in, in what they, their whole campaign, at least the one that really caught my attention was all about, you know, defeating cuts to Medicaid, uh, especially in the, in the whole Paul Ryan Tea Party era uh, around 2010, 2011, 2012, where they were proposing some really deep cuts to Medicaid. This group of Catholic nuns set out from Washington, D.C. and drove all around the country opposing those cuts. So that that together with the Wellstone idea kind of gave me a sense of that you could do something like a Medicaid mobile. I would say the one other piece of the the piece uh, you know that influenced it was for in my mind was the way that Bernie Sanders went out and campaigned in such a way where it was almost like the issue was bigger than the person. The Bernie Sanders campaign was really a Medicare for all campaign more than it was a Bernie Sanders campaign yeah. in in a lot of ways. And that that really gave me the idea that wow, we could do that. We like even if no one knows us or is particularly cares about us as individuals, if we put a policy front and center and we do it in a very in a kind of spectacular way with this mascot, <laughs> that's going to grab people's attention. We can rally people behind a big monumental policy. And, and so, so those, so I would say, yeah, taking those three together, the the nuns on the bus, the the old green Paul Wellstone bus, and the idea from Bernie Sanders that you could that you could do an issue based campaign. That that was that was kind of the origin of the the Medicaid mobile concept. So we so that was where we painted that green and and put Medicaid for Idaho across the side of it, as if Medicaid itself were a candidate for statewide office, Medicaid for Idaho, and just started driving that thing around. And that's where we first met you, yeah. <laughs> Jen, and uh, and you, uh, and and the rest is history. I used to just tell I, when Garrett and Luke approached me and said like. Hey, I think we should spend this summer driving our camper around the state talking to people about healthcare. Like, I, I thought they were kidding. I, I mean, if, if any of your listeners have seen uh, the original Medicaid mobile, like that, it doesn't inspire confidence. It's a classy, um, so, it's a classy, classy uh, machine. It's beautiful. It's just, it is, it's, you, you know, know it's, uh, it looks like a pile of garbage <laughs> wrapped together. Um, yeah. Yeah. Pretty impressive. It was, I mean, even before we painted it green, it was it basically had that same kind of vibe going for it. So right. yeah, but it was when we started driving around the state. You know, I think the original intention was like, okay, well, when we formed Reclaim Idaho, it was like, okay, the whole idea was let's just try to change the conversation around politics in Idaho. You know, and I think far too often politics in Idaho comes down to who is the most pro Second Amendment candidate that there is, 
And at the end of the day, I don't think that those are the issues that keep Idaho parents up at night. Like, I think parents are worried about their kids getting good education, their family being able to have access to health care, and being able to recreate. Like, when you talk to the majority of Idahoans, they'll tell you those are the things that are important to them. So we formed, we formed Reclaim Idaho with this idea of, like, let's just try to shift the conversation to those things that really affect Idaho working families. And the summer of 2017, you guys probably recall, the Trump administration was really trying to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, and there was just a ton of energy around healthcare, uh, and so we sort of decided our next mission would be to go around the state and talk to people about their experiences with healthcare. What we found, which I'm sure you guys have seen in your community when you talk to people, is that there's just heartbreaking stories out there, you know, and the Medicaid gap has caused so much devastation for families. So I think, you know, when we set out, it wasn't initially to, uh, to start a, a ballot initiative to expand Medicaid program, but we really just wanted to kind of get a narrative and kind of get a lay of the land around Idaho about what healthcare was like. And, and we would have people at all these different rallies you'd go to, and people would say, like, well, have you considered doing a ballot initiative and talk to, like, quote-unquote experts on Idaho politicians and say, like, oh, there's no way you can do a ballot initiative. <laughs> you wouldn't have enough time. The time you would have would be the dead of winter. It costs millions of dollars to do these things because you have to, you know, hire paid signature gatherers everywhere you go. And oh, by the way, Idaho legislature, after the last uh, successful initiative, made it more difficult. So there's just absolutely no way you can do it now. And so we kind of mold, we mold, we certainly like listen to those people and are like, okay, well, that's interesting. Everybody's telling us it's impossible. But I think more compelling than that was like these devastating stories that we've heard from people that were, you know, losing their homes, that were having to move out of state, having to get divorces so that they would qualify for healthcare. Just crazy stories of, of people um, just desperate. And I think we sort of that, you know, trying to help des- the, those desperate people uh, really outweighed the fear that, like, we didn't, I guess this plain and simple, we didn't have anything to lose. So we said, why, why not just try to do a ballot initiative? And since we had been going all around the state, you know, we already kind of had a volunteer base from all around the state. So we, we didn't feel as trepidations about meeting the distribution requirements that the legislature had set out. So, yeah, so we just kind of tried <laughs> and, and were successful, which is like such a testament to the energy of, of everyday people who, felt hope and uh, and compassion for their neighbors that they wanted to be able to make a difference. And it's pretty incredible. If there's one thing that we learned over the past eight years, it was that Medicaid expansion wasn't going to be a cakewalk in Idaho. My brother Dan is an example of a person early on who had his doubts, and he certainly wasn't alone. There were plenty of doubters early on. But the reality was, you know, there were a lot of good reasons for thinking it wouldn't work. Right? <laughs> um, it, you know, and, and like a lot of what, what people often said was that we don't really have that much reason to think that people in Idaho want uh, a big government sponsored healthcare program to be expanded, especially after all the vitriol you know, of the of the Tea Party, anti, anti-Obamacare movement in Idaho that got Labrador elected and that got all these other people elected for the first time. I, I mean, in some ways, Garrett and I, Garrett had only moved back to Sandpoint recently. And, you know, in some ways, we had the virtue of like not having lived through all that in Idaho because we were away during that period. So we were able to kind of look at things from a pretty from a fresh you know perspective and just take try to take the temperature of Idaho in in 20 
17 as opposed to being kind of scarred by the experience of the previous years but but there were all kind if you looked at the previous years and the whole tea party era and all that there was good reason to believe that this thing wouldn't get traction there you know there was polling that said that from boise state university saying like 70 percent of people in idaho want the medicaid gap to be addressed but if you were a skeptic you could easily say yeah they want it addressed it doesn't mean they just want straightforward expansion of medicaid to do it and and that's what a lot of people in boise who are working on the problem believed they thought yeah, people want to address, but they want some kind of unique, you know, what they, the term often used that drove me crazy, the Idaho solution. Uh, you know, you need some kind of like, you know, more maybe small government solution to the Medicaid gap, whatever that might be. And then, and then you know, if you looked out, it, maybe the biggest reason to doubt it is that no initiative had made it onto the ballot in years ever since they... Uh, always forget the year, I think it was 20, around 2013, where they um, changed the rules pretty dramatically and made it a lot harder to get an initiative on the ballot. So nothing had made the ballot since then. So, so why would, why would a, you know, why, why would this campaign led by a few amateurs from Sandpoint with a green camper, you know, <laughs> manage to, manage to, how, how, well, why would, why would it be any different for, for this campaign than it had been for uh, a number of, you know, campaigns that had tried and failed. So, so I, I understand it. I think we were just so fired up that we were willing, we had this attitude of doing what it takes. And, and, in a, and a big part of it was just truly being committed. I think a lot of people are skeptical. They're thinking, ah, this would take less like massive effort to go all over the state and organize and um, to possibly do this. And, and they didn't, that you know they had good reason to believe that we weren't up to the task when in fact <laughs> that's exactly what we did we just started going one town to the next and actually digging in and spending real time getting to know people and building relationships with people to the point where we had eventually had a real teams in about 20 different places you brought up the next part of the story, which is Idaho's a nightmare to even get something on the ballot. And yet you were able to orchestrate this massive effort to get Medicaid expansion to just be on the ballot in the middle of winter. Yeah. And, um, and that's where the key component of this was the system we developed uh, around what we called county leaders. And it, and, and this is, you know, this took real community, this took something like traditional community organizing where, uh, you know, we went out into communities first by going on this whole statewide tour where Garrett and Emily and I drove to 20 different, we did 20 different events all around the state before we even filed a ballot initiative. So we started building those relationships and then and and doing that traditional community organizing work, which put most simply, I think it's you go out and you search for people who have the will and ability to lead. And then you build a relationship with them and you challenge them to lead and you point them. You at least give them a sense of the strategy and a path to victory, but then you challenge them, you know, to not just help you, but to actually take ownership of, of the issue and the, the, the campaign in their own community. And, and that was the essential building block of the whole thing that before we even filed the initiative, we went back and reconnected 
with all these people who we developed these relationships with, and we got commitments from them to lead the effort uh, in their in in their communities. So that by the time the 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 initiative was ready to be circulated, even though we only had four and a half months to do it, there were these people in Pocatello, you know, in Idaho Falls, every you know, in locally there in Coeur d'Alene, who committed themselves, who who really believed that this was a monumental thing and that it would it would be something they would take a lot of pride in if they were able to get those signatures and get it on the ballot and who committed themselves to making sure that would happen. Because we had so many people working in so many different areas, that was how we were able to overcome the most difficult obstacle, which is in the in the ballot initiative rules, what's called the distribution requirement, which means that you you don't just need 6% of all registered voters to sign the petition, which is about 56,000 signatures. You also need 6% of all registered voters in 18 different districts. Well, we overcame that obstacle by having leaders in at least you know 18 different districts who were working passionately on on the on the issue to the, to the point where we ended up qualifying 21 districts and it was almost there was some national support that came in at the very tail end um, but just with our sprawling volunteer organization we collected i think 54,000 out of the 56,000 and a half signatures we needed so we collected about 96% of what we needed just with our sprawling you know decentralized volunteer campaign to get the full story, we had to talk to some of these team leaders who were the key to success when it came to organizing around the Medicaid expansion petition drive. We talked to Sam Sandmeyer, co-leader of Ada County, Jessica McHuron from my home county in Kootenai, and finally, Linda Larson from Sandpoint. Let's start with Sam. Sam, what was your role in Reclaim Idaho and the petition drive movement? Well, nothing about Reclaim Idaho is real official, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I I became called uh, the Ada County co-leader, and Tracy Olson uh, was my co-leader, and um, Luke asked us to organize the districts in Ada County, and um, there are eight districts in Ada County, so we... um, we said yes, <laughs> and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> so when did you first hear about Reclaim Idaho or the idea of Medicaid expansion happening in Idaho? Well, I had been interested in um, getting Medicaid expansion in Idaho for several years just through hearing about the legislature's failure to get it done, but I didn't know there was any um, organization behind it. Molly Page from from Sun Valley, from Haley, put me in touch with Luke Mayville, and Luke met with me a couple summers ago and uh, talked about this idea, and he said, you know, we've got this green van and we're going around the state talking to people about Medicaid. Medicaid expansion, we're thinking of doing a ballot initiative. What do you think? And I said, oh, I think that's a great idea. I think you should do that. And he said, well, are you are you willing to help? And I said, sure. And he said, are you willing to lead Ada County? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, let me call Tracy because Tracy is, is amazing and she makes up for 
the weaknesses that I have. And um, he asked us to do it. And we started organizing and holding um, meetings in my living room and got district leaders from from the districts in Ada County and formed a team. We were there from from pretty much the beginning. You know, we were there before the initiative was filed and everything. So, Jessica, when did you first hear about the idea of expanding Medicaid in Idaho and Reclaim Idaho? Uh, The first time I had heard about the efforts to expand Medicaid in Idaho uh, was when Luke Mayville, Emily Strizic, and Garrett were touring uh, Idaho in, that was the summer of 2017. It was in July. They came to Coeur d'Alene in the park. And they came in with their Medicaid mobile. Um, at that time, they were trying to form neighborhood teams to survey neighborhoods about this issue, trying to prompt action. That was well before they decided to launch the petition drive. Um, I had heard about this Medicaid gap issue before then, and I'd known that it was a long kind of festering issue in Idaho where the legislature just didn't have, just couldn't take action on resolving that problem. Linda, when did you first get involved with Reclaim Idaho? Well, I I think um, Luke and Garrett came over to my house one day in maybe August, October timeframe and talked to me about it because I had I had been involved in a, an initiative drive in the past and I felt like I had some things to offer, you know, as far as how that went, what, what were some of the downfalls, what were, went well about it, things like that, what I had learned basically. And they came and talked to me about it and I shared my experience and I shared some of my concerns and I, you know, I said, you know, you've got to make sure that the ballot or whatever you put on the ballot is you've gone over it with the lawyer because, you know, they can pull that and, you know, you know, all this work that everybody's been doing is go down, you know, it won't work out if you don't have all these things in place. And so I, I kind of talked to them about that. And, and from my perspective, since my initiative didn't work out, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much work. And they had to really convince me that they could get leadership in the those 18 districts because I saw that as the, 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 the issue and he they were able to convince me that that was going to happen and asked me to to be the leader up here and I I agreed to be the co-leader I I didn't want to take all the responsibility on my own shoulders <laughs> so um, Teresa Renner and I um, are co-leaders up here and uh, we work you know we're really well together she has really strong skills that I don't have and I've got some really strong skills that so we just complement each other really well so Anyway, that's when I first heard about it, and um, part of me thought they were a little bit crazy, but there was another part of me that said, you know what, this might just work. <laughs> After listening to them, you know, they're they're both so inspirational and so smart, so, so they convinced me. Now, Sam, Jessica, were you two believers very early on, or did you have your doubts? Yes, I was a believer right from the beginning, but I think that's because I was ignorant as to <laughs> how much work it would actually be. Um, I just, I just knew it had to happen, so I believed it would happen. And everyone with any experience in this area and all the conventional wisdom was saying this was not possible because of the district requirement. You know, after the Luna laws, the citizens repealed the Luna laws. The legislature changed the rules and made it uh, much more difficult, uh, requiring 6% of registered voters from 18 different districts. And in a state as rural as Idaho, that was seen as impossible. And that's why no other initiative had succeeded since that rule went into place. But what Luke and Emily and Garrett and and um, 
you know, the, the early Reclaim Idaho folks believed was that could also be our strength. Because if we are forced to organize in all corners of Idaho, then we have that strength district-wide and we can use that organization to advocate for other important issues uh, going forward. So really by creating that very difficult rule they created a monster <laughs> because now we have 25 teams all over Idaho and, and many individuals, too, who were just, you know, renegade signature gatherers that went out on their own and gathered signatures. So it, it became our strength. Maybe it was because I was naive and I didn't know how hard it would be. But I was instantly excited when Luke uh, reached out to me in October to see what I thought about a petition drive. And the reason why I thought it would be so exciting is I, at that time, was pretty fascinated with how to raise voter turnout. And I felt very strongly that if we were able to get Medicaid expansion on the ballot, it would dramatically raise voter turnout um, in large numbers. I also knew that it would be an excellent way to, to continue to register voters by having an issue, a compelling issue like that. And I also thought it would be a wonderful way to provide, let's say, discipline in our kind in our circles to take action towards a very tangible goal. So I was a believer from the very beginning. Wendell Larson comes with a different perspective. Linda had worked on a petition drive before Medicaid expansion. And what petition drive was that, Linda? Medical marijuana decriminalizing marijuana, not legalizing it recreational, but at least decriminalizing it. And then there was a third part there that would make hemp growing hemp legal. And my mom and I were the leaders up here in District 1, and we actually qualified District 1 with the both of us working on it. And, and you know, we had a, a small group of volunteers, but the bulk of the work was done by my mom and I, and I was on crutches. And yet we were able to do it, but nobody else in the whole state of Idaho were able to qualify their districts. And then there was a problem on the initiative and they had to actually pull the petition before we were even finished collecting signatures. So that that experience, you know, was really hard on me because we worked really, really hard. And I didn't I didn't want to do that again. I was not going to put my that much effort into something and then have, you know, something, you know, not go well. But anyway, um, and I'm a tutor. So the, the reason I got involved with that is because I had two students that I had worked with. They went to college and they got arrested in Idaho and they were given felonies for marijuana. It's just simple usage issues, right, in college. And they lost their Pell Grants and they both had to stop college to individuals, different situations. But anyway, that just broke my heart. And I was like, that's it. This has got to change. I'm not going to see my students who have so much potential, you know, basically lose everything and have to change their life plan because of something so benign as, as cannabis use. Anyway, that's, uh, that's what my experience, how I got into that uh, initiative. The, the difference between the, the two campaigns um, was that this issue affected everyone. And so, and it was something that you could talk about. You can talk about Medicaid, you know, medical bills and, and healthcare with people and, and everybody has a story. And so as I started thinking about it, you know, I thought, you know what, this might be, it's going to still be a lot of work, but this might be the, the one issue that is, is going to work in our in our current structure that makes it very difficult to get anything to pass, to get anything at least on the ballot. 
This concludes part one of our Medicaid expansion series. In part two, we will cover Medicaid expansion getting on the ballot, as well as Prop 2's journey to election night. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Talk to you later. The uh, idea came about that uh, Dan and I, uh, you know, failed legislative candidates. What do you do afterwards? You start podcasting about oh, stuff. Oh, yeah, of course. That's yeah. not all you can do. This has been a production of Values First.